Have you ever wondered why Christmas? Why did God send his son to be born in a stable and placed in a manger? Why the shepherds, the angels, and the wise men with their very strange gifts? It's all very unusual. Now, once you've glimpsed how broken humanity is, and once you've stared this bleak world in the face, once you've felt the darkness of the human heart, you can understand that God needed to do something, and something serious. He couldn't just let it go. And so in Noah's day, it was a flood. And then Moses received the law on a fiery mountain. And then came prophet after prophet, but mostly rejected. And so we can understand that he would save his best till last, that he would send Jesus, his very own son. Send the best where others have failed. But why not send Jesus as the all-conquering king, or the judge of the living and the dead? All the prophecies in the Old Testament, many of them, point to the Messiah coming as a conquering king. Why this powerless, vulnerable baby placed in a in a barn, in a manger. Well, today as we open up Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, a more well-known passage that talks about Christmas, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the fact of Christmas, then we're going to look at the, the pattern of Christmas, and that will unveil the why of Christmas. So we'll start with the fact of Christmas and then the pattern that will lead on to the why of Christmas. So the fact of Christmas... Now, when most New Zealanders think of the birth of Jesus, they think of myth or fairy story. They think that the Christmas, the nativity story is a wonderful myth, a powerful myth, but still a myth. And it's based on the birth of a baby, maybe, maybe not, but most Kiwis will think that the whole thing with the angels and the guiding star and the mystic wise men, well, it's all just warmth and sentiment. And so they think of the nativity story as, if they do think of the nativity story associated with Christmas, it's no more important than Santa and his reindeer, no more important than the Christmas tree and fairy lights, and certainly not as important as family gathering from far and wide. Yes, for most Kiwis, if they think of Jesus, then it's a sentimental sort of uh, look at the baby. Yet we contrast this with Luke and how unsentimental and how unmythlike his introduction to the birth of Jesus is. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, if you've ever read the great Greek myth Iliad or read Lord of the Rings, you know that you don't start a great myth or story with a mathematical census. This is a very, apologise to any statisticians here, but this is quite a boring way (laughs) to start a great majestic story. (laughs) But it's because Luke wants to stress the fact of Christmas. He wants to stress that this Jesus did just not come in the ether of history, but there is a date and a time. Most of the readers were alive when this empire-wide census occurred, and they can remember having to travel to their birthplace and to having to pay the tax. Now, when we do a census, 
the government in their grace do not tax us. They don't say, well, you fill in the form and give us $100. But that's sort of what was happening here. You go and register and you pay the tax that goes to the emperor. And so people can remember those days. And so when Luke is saying this happened during this particular census, he is establishing the birth of Jesus in historical fact. In fact, Luke writes his gospel and Acts for exactly this reason. And we see this in the beginning of Luke's gospel. He gives a rationale, an introduction to the gospel. And notice what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time in the past, to write an ordinary account for you. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely. What Luke's saying is, I have talked to eyewitnesses, I have talked to the apostles, I have researched the story of Jesus. When it comes to Acts, he was involved. He was on some of Paul's missionary journeys. He's pulled this together into two documents, clearly rooted in historical fact. And because it was very important for Luke that the birth of Jesus and all the stories don't become a myth, just some story. They're rooted in fact. And let me explain to you why this is very important. And I'll do this by looking at two religious leaders who also claim the way of salvation. So the first leader is Buddha. Now, Buddha was a historical figure who lived and claims that salvation is obtained through enlightenment. Now, like Jesus, there are all sorts of stories surrounding Buddha. However, none of these stories impact the way of salvation. So how Buddha was born is irrelevant to his way of salvation. It's got nothing to do with enlightenment. All of the stories that are associated with Buddha, whether they be true or not, it's, it's irrelevant. You don't have to fact check Buddha because his way is the way of enlightenment. There's a disconnect between his birth and lifestyle and his teaching. Muhammad is very similar. Muhammad, the way to salvation in the Islam faith is by submission. In fact, the word Islam, when it's translated into English, means submission. So for Muhammad, the way of salvation is submission to the Quran. And again, how Muhammad was born is irrelevant. The stories associated with him are irrelevant because the way of salvation, according to him, is through submission. Now, this is very different to Jesus. Jesus says that salvation is through faith in me and me alone. And his birth is crucial to his salvation. His ministry, his miracles, his death on the cross and his resurrection. You cannot disconnect those from his message of salvation. If Christmas did not happen, as we have it in the Bible, then Christianity, the way of salvation, falls in a screaming heap because there would be no virgin birth and there would be no fulfillment of all the prophecies. And so you see how important it is that we fact-check the gospel. Where possible, the Bible gives us opportunity to go into the historical record to see whether this happened or not. You see, this is the fact of Christmas. 
it happened, as we see. And Luke and the other gospel writers do their best to make sure that we are aware of these facts. So it's the first thing that we see in Luke, in Luke chapter 2. The facts, the census which roots the birth and historical reality. And this leads us to the pattern of Christmas, because Luke is not only concerned about the facts, but also the pattern. Let's pick this up in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now this verse is loaded with expectation. David was the greatest of all the kings of Israel. And around the time of Jesus' birth and actually through his life, there was this anticipation that the Messiah would come. Jewish folk were looking for that one that would save them from the Roman Empire. And so if you were reading this and you hear about Joseph being in the direct lineage of David and going to Bethlehem where the Messiah was prophesied to be born and that that his uh, fiance was with child, then you'd be thinking, this is going to be it. The conquering king, the Messiah is coming. Until this all gets turned upside down on its head in verse 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid it in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So instead of being born into privilege and plenty, Jesus was born into humble means. You might even say he was born into poverty, in a stable, laid in a feeding trough. And this is the pattern of Christmas. In fact, it's the pattern of the gospel. Surprise and humility. Surprise and humility is the pattern of Christmas. And we see this humility, this poverty, again in Luke chapter 2. What happens is that at the birth of every firstborn male, the, the husband and wife would travel to Jerusalem and they would offer a sacrifice because every firstborn was dedicated, every firstborn male was dedicated to the Lord. And we pick this up in verse 22 where Mary and Joseph make their way to Jerusalem. And when the time came for her purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there were options for this particular sacrifice. And the preferred option was to sacrifice a lamb. But if a family couldn't afford that, if they were too poor, then the law allowed them to sacrifice a pigeon or turtle dove. And so straight away we have a bit of an economic status of Mary and Joseph. They weren't well off enough to offer a lamb. They only offered what poor people offer. So Jesus was brought up, not destitute, but what we might call a working class family. Certainly not a family of privilege and honour. Certainly not high class or royal family. This is the pattern of Christmas. And it doesn't get much better than this when it comes to privilege and prestige because of where Jesus lived, where he was brought up in Luke 
2.39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, every region around the world, including Otago Southland, has a town that is the butt of jokes. I hesitate to mention the town that comes to mind because surely there will be someone here from that town who will rightly be offended. Uh, Close. Nazareth was that town. You may remember the story of Nicodemus in an attempt to defend Jesus on the night he was betrayed. And the high priest sneered at him and said, Nazareth, don't you know your Bible? Every, nobody, nobody comes from Nazareth. No prophet comes from Nazareth. And if we go back to Jesus and the Jordan River and he calls Philip, and Philip's an amazing guy. And as soon as Jesus calls Philip, what does he think? He thinks of his friend Nathaniel. And he hunts down Nathaniel. And, and he says, Nathaniel, you've got to come and meet this guy, Jesus from Nazareth. He's amazing. And, and what does Nathaniel say? John 1.46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And this is the pattern of Christmas. Because God did not choose the capital city, Jerusalem, for Jesus to grow up in, but a backwater town called Nazareth. This is the pattern of Christmas. And we see this all through the Bible. Think of Moses. What was Moses doing when he was called? Well, he was out in the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep. What about King David? What was he doing when Samuel, the most important prophet of the land, came for a meal? His dad proudly introduced him to all the sons. Well, except for David, he was forgotten, wasn't he? He was out the back tending sheep. But it's Moses and it's David who God chose. And it's Jesus who came born in a stable. And this is the pattern of Christmas. And it's the pattern of the gospel. Because Jesus always associated himself with the marginalized and the downtrodden and those that were struggling. And the pattern of Christmas continues to Good Friday, that darkest of days. And then the glory of the resurrection. And this was said here as the baby Jesus was laid in a manger. So, the fact of Christmas. We see this with the reference to the census and the detail that Luke includes in his gospel that allows us to fact-check his work. And then we have the pattern of Jesus, which was born humble and in a manger. And this brings us to the why of Christmas. See, the Old Testament, many of the prophecies about the Messiah said that the Messiah would come in all his glory and judge the living and the dead. So why not on that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, why did not the Messiah come to judge the living and the dead? And the reason is this. This is the why Christmas. Because if Jesus had come to conquer as the judge and the ruling king, not one of us could have stood. None, zero, nothing. Nobody in 2,000 years ago and no one today could have stood without that first Christmas. Because the Bible is very clear. For all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And so in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, we all stand condemned. If Jesus had come 2,000 years ago to judge the living and the dead, nobody would be found innocent. Nobody could be saved. 
But because Jesus came as a vulnerable baby to grow up and show us the way to his heavenly father and died on the cross and was rose from the dead, it means now opened up for us is the way of salvation so that when he returns, some of us, all of us who look to Jesus can be saved. For the wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23, but because of Christmas, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, until you look into your soul and see the blackness that resides there, until you can glimpse the holiness of God, Christmas does not make sense. And neither does the cross. Until you see the darkness in every human heart and the catch a glimpse of the glory and the holiness of God, Christ's death and resurrection is just foolishness. But when you do, then this verse here becomes the most precious treasure that you have. When you understand the blackness of your heart and the holiness of God and what Jesus did on the cross, then John 3.16 becomes your most precious treasure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that's you and I, shall not perish but have eternal life. Can I challenge you today, if you can speak that out loud and not be moved, then I'd say you have not glimpsed the blackness of your heart nor the holiness of God. And can I encourage you to pray that God will reveal both those to you and be humbled by the gospel. And then the light of glory will shine in your heart. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. In the NIV it says lavished. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. How our hard and calloused hearts, how they melt when we meet the warmth of the Father's love. Amazing love, how can it be that he should die for me? Amazing love that reached down on that first Christmas that we might be saved. I mean, this is the the reason for Christmas, the reason for the star and the wise men, the shepherds, the trough, and the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. The reason. Jesus becomes our Emmanuel, God with us. He will come again to conquer and to judge the world. And because of that first Christmas, that means some, and that includes every one of us here, who look to Jesus with humble hearts, who have been moved by not only their own frailty, but the glory of God, and have asked Jesus to be their Lord, then when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, then we will be saved, and he will delight in us. For those whose hearts are open to the surprise of the major and the foolishness of the cross, Christ becomes our Emmanuel. The presence of God, the love of God, and the power of God with us. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You know, the story of that first Christmas just does not go old. It's just an amazing story. 
but our hearts do grow calloused, Lord, and tired. And so we pray that you will pour out your spirit so that we may see Jesus afresh this Christmas and that move from that wooden trough to the wooden cross. Lord, move us so that we may understand something more, something new, something fresh of all that Jesus did for us. May we never take him for granted. May he become our greatest treasure. May all of the world's attractions fade when we see that gift that Christ is in our hearts that you've given us. We pray this through Jesus our Lord. Amen.